Hello, interwebs, and welcome to Close Up. I'm your co-host, Joe. And I'm Ryan. You ever love a thing nobody else seems to love? Maybe that's because the thing you love sucks. Or, more likely, you just have exquisite taste, and everyone else is too uncultured to know it exists. Exactly. Today, Ryan and I go over some of the most underrated media we've ever consumed. We'll try to refrain from spoilers, because we're we're getting kind of vague here. Could be talking about anything. Zooming past our medium shot. I didn't make that agreement. (laughs) Okay, well, I'm going to refrain from spoilers about vague things. You have no idea. Anyway, we're into our close-up now. So, I love a lot of stuff. My list before we started here had near 50 items, which I felt deserved to be there. Ryan insisted I narrow it down fairly. Okay. But I'm probably going to rattle off the rest of the end anyway, because, yeah. <laughs> Just, I'm not going to go in, I'm only going to go in depth on about 16 or so, but... Um, <laughs> I just wanted to make sure Ryan didn't steal any of my honorable mentions. That's why I'm saving them for the end. All right, so I'm going to get started on mine. I'm delaying because I was dumb and didn't get my note up right away. <laughs> and I'm Joseph, sp- this is episode 59. <laughs> 60. Whatever. Even worse. <laughs> I'm not tapping my case. Number one in my top underrated shows... Lost in Space, the Netflix reboot from a, from a couple of years back. Nobody ever seemed to talk about this show. I don't know why. It was based on a beloved IP from the 1960s, Lost in Space, if you're unaware, is about this family called the Robinsons. They're from a future of Earth, and they are... Earth is basically screwed <laughs> at this point. They... <laughs> They only have so long before the planet dies, but a lot of the top minds on the planet developed this space program for the best of humanity to get out onto a a spacecraft and go to this idyllic colony in another galaxy. And to do that, they developed this kind of faster-than-light travel thing that opens up wormholes pretty well. But on the way, this giant colony spaceship is attacked by aliens and the ship goes off course on its way to the colony and everyone gets stranded on this planet together and the robinson family has to kind of gather everybody together to survive and not just survive but see if they can eventually get to the colony and one of the aliens who attacked them ends up joining them joining the family on its way because it lost its memory and forms an attachment with the Robinson's youngest son, Will. And because of their bond, this robot is inclined to protect Will. So this, this show is just fantastic. You know, it's got some of the best CGI I've ever seen on a television show. Huge budget. Really well done action scenes. It's really intense stuff. The family dynamic is incredibly heartwarming. They you you love every member of the Robinson family and you also get to know some of the other people that they're stuck with specifically um the doctor who is like she's a fantastic foil because she just she's very in it for herself and kind of screws over everybody at every opportunity just to go for her own gain 
But uh, yeah, Lost in Space, incredibly underrated. I haven't seen the original show, but I think, you know, and I don't want to judge it or the 90s movie. I think they made one too, but this is probably the best version of it. I'm just, I'm going to, I'm going to make that decade. Yeah, I, haven't seen I thought you were talking, I thought you were talking about the Tim Allen movie. And no. then you said series. I was like, oh. Nope. The Netflix show from, uh, mm. I think it started in about 2016, 17 or so. It, it only got three seasons. Uh, it ended on a really good note though. It didn't need any more than that. It told its story, what it needed to do. It's a great three season extended story. Just about a family lost in space. You'll feel all the emotions through it. It's fantastic. By the way, a lot of these things that we're talking about today might eventually get spun off onto a uh, Joe or Ryan Explains or In Defense of where we talk about them more in depth, but we're just kind of rattling them off here for time. We'll see. Maybe. So my second (laughs) thing here is the Mad Max video game. That came out about the same time as Fury Road. I don't know anybody else who had this game. Uh, the only other person I know who played it was Justin. And that's only because I loaned him my copy and told mm-hmm. him, dude, this is such an underrated game. You need to play it. And he loved it, too. I think the reason this game didn't do well is because everyone is wary of movie tie in games at this point. You just it came out around the time of Fury Road and everyone just expects, oh, it's it's going to be like Fury Road, but a crappier version of it, because that's just Mm -hmm. how those games go. And that was also Mm -hmm. sort of the around the timeline where those tie in video games were dying off. I think that was like maybe one of the last ones to be produced. Which the thing about it is that it's got nothing to do with Mad Max Fury Road. It's for all intents and purposes, its own independent installment of Mad Max. It's a completely Mm -hmm. original adventure. It has nothing to do with the movies mm-hmm. other than the name Mad Max. And well, I mean, I, okay, not, not to do with the movies, but Fury Road. It's its own thing said in the Mad Max world. Right. It expands the lore in some really interesting ways. You see a lot of weird crap out in the desert. The car combat is some of the best I've ever played in a video game. It just, it feels really good to drive the cars and destroy other cars on the way. You know, there's a guy on the, there's a hunchback on the, like who's your your uh, companion on the back, and he's mm-hmm. got a har- and he's got a harpoon, and he rips the other cars across. Like he rips them apart. While you slam into him, you get nitrous oxide boosting your car. You get to do races, kind of demolition derby things. You also have to survive by eating like old cans of dog food and worms. The combat's like Arkham style free flow combat. When you're getting into fist fights with people, or uh, has lead pipes and or two by fours. Basically, Max just goes around the wastelands, clearing out enemy camps, doing random missions for people he meets in the desert, and just Mm -hmm. freeing the wasteland everywhere he can. There's a lot of fantastic set pieces in the game, crazy locations he goes to, very memorable. I think Gastown is the most memorable place I remember. It's where he's trying to get to in the game. And it's kind of like a John Wick setup as well, where the whole game basically takes place because somebody stole his car. (laughs) And and he gets, yeah. And that's his whole thing. Somebody stole my car, which is one of the last reminders of my life in the old world. And I'm going to get it back no matter the cost. (laughs) 
<laughs> so he's just rampaging through the desert trying to get his car back and that's basically the game and it's it's great right what's funny about like movie time games uh and this is excluding mad max is i think one of the most famous examples is x-men origins wolverine where the video game developers were told the basics of the story but couldn't they weren't told like all of it so they yes. had they had like levels from the movie scenes or whatever but they were able to do their own thing with it and people said origins is like way better than the actual movie um in terms of it being enjoyable yeah uh but with this i guess the mad max video game they were just kind of like you do your own thing from what exactly. i remember yeah it and was I just love that it was just kind of a tie-in based around the brand having a big entry out there and people mm-hmm. turned it down. I assume I have to assume because they thought it was just a tie-in. It wasn't, it was its own. It was just a standalone Mad Max video game that happened to come mm-hmm. out around the movie. It was just a brand yeah. synergy thing. Which is weird. Cause it didn't look like anything like Tom Hardy or anything to do with the no. fear road at all. It wasn't. Yeah. So I highly recommend that game. What's your I've heard good one? things about it. Uh, well, my uh, I actually just added two more as I was looking over at my video game collection. Did I add two more? I added one more. Anyway. I'm looking at my list again. I'll figure it out. Anyway. My, um, my first one is uh, Titanfall 2. Now, okay. the first Titanfall, I will admit, sucked. It was really bad. It was great premise, but they promised us a campaign of sorts that would be good. They were like, oh, don't worry, a campaign's in here. But what it was is a quick cutscene, not even a cutscene at the beginning of a multiplayer match. So they made you like play campaign missions, but they were actually multiplayer matches and there was a tie-in story in there, but nobody knows what the tie-in story is. Where in Titanfall 2, they fixed that. They made an actual campaign surrounding it the combat is much more refined and if for those who don't know, remember what titanfall is as a franchise it was this sort of this idea where you could be in a mech but also boots on the ground as well it was kind of around that time call of duty was also doing these booster packs and you can jump on walls you can do uh you could do like a double jump but you can also fire from your gun it's kind of like that but you can be in a giant mech from time to time. And it was a, I believe it was an Xbox exclusive exclusive at the time. Uh, but with Titanfall 2, I think it's so underrated just because of the story. I mean, it's kind of this pseudo partnership between uh, who you are. Um, I believe his name's Jack, Jack Cooper. I can't remember. I think his name's Cooper. And you play as him as a brand new pilot. And through plot narrative you get paired up with this titan who is kind of an ai uh he has his own thoughts and feelings but he's not fully in full control he knows he's at the uh he's under the control of the humans under his pilot and through events they pair up together and it just becomes this really fun action-filled story of you trying to fight the militia has also taken over the world. It's not like the grandest story ever, but when you're coming from Titanfall 1 to here, it's 10 times better. It's so much fun running around the walls. Like you can run on pretty much any wall in the game. 
And even the multiplayer is really fun. Uh, I think I grinded the multiplayer probably hours and hours and hours. I think I've prestiged twice, which wow. I've never done in any game. It was just really fun playing as the different types of Titans you could in the multiplayer. Uh, you could even do it in the campaign. You see all those memes all the time where it's like, it's just a game, and then they show you clips of stuff. They'll show you clips from the Titanfall 2 campaign. Yeah. And you just kind of build this relationship with this giant robot that you would never expect. Can we not get into a car accident, neighbors? Okay, anyway. Uh, But I just think it it's not really talked about that much because... I don't know what it is. I don't think it was just given a lot of love just because of the original Titanfall game. But um, with the multiplayer too, the maps are really good. They're really fun. They were adding more as the game was getting older. And uh, I just remembered another game that I was going to, that I'm going to bring up later. But okay, yeah, I think it was a really fun Xbox exclusive that they tried to do to sort of not combat Halo, but to be like, hey, we have another thing. But I guess it just wasn't that popular to get a third. Funny you mentioned the only person I ever remember who talked about Titanfall 2 was one of my buddies in high school. So I do remember mm. somebody else loved that game, but he's the only one I think I've ever heard besides you now just mentioning it. And the reason I didn't give it a shot is, you said it yourself, Xbox exclusive. I've been a PlayStation guy my whole life. Mm. So Yeah, that's probably Xbox. one of the major problems too when you're building up something from the ground up and you're making it exclusive and, you're, and it's not totally refined you're probably going to do yourself more harm than good. So I but, did hear about it. It did intrigue me, but that's why I never played it. Anyway. It's fun. You can get so, it on PC now, I'm pretty sure. Okay. For like 10 bucks, probably. <laughs> sure. I hesitate to do a video game for my next one, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to just shuffle around a bit. So my next <laughs> one is The Tick on Amazon Prime. Amazon... No, you know, I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack for this. I haven't seen all their superhero shows yet, okay? Y you tuned in just a couple episodes ago. You know I haven't seen Invincible yet. I also haven't seen The Boys. <gasps> okay, I'm going to get to it. <laughs> I haven't seen The Boys either. I will. Yeah, okay, thank you. So it's not just me. But I will get to it. <laughs> I've heard great things. Amazon's third superhero show is The Tick. For my money, their most underrated one, because I never hear anyone talk about it, and it got cancelled after two seasons. It's based on an old comic book, I think from the 80s or 90s. There was also a show starring Patrick Burton, Warburton, I think his name is, yeah, Patrick Warburton yep. in, the, in the, the early 2000s. The Tick is kind of this, there was a cartoon series in the 90s as well. The Tick is one of these characters who just kind of resurfaces every couple of decades in a, in a new form. And mm -hmm. he never seems to catch that great a following, but I, I love it. <laughs> this world is, it's so unique, you know? Um, so basically the idea of the tick is, well, this version of the tick in the show is about this guy named, he's an accountant named Arthur. And in this world, in his city, so the um, superheroes in this world are government registered Basically, I mean, they're still kind of vigilantes, but they all register with the government and they work out of governmental offices. And the team for his city was called the Flag Five. So when Arthur was a kid, they fought the world's greatest villain, the Terror, and the Terror murdered all the Flag Five right in front of Arthur and ended up killing his dad as well. 
But then the world's greatest hero, Superion, who's the Superman allegory for this world, he uh, is said to have killed the terror. But Arthur spent his entire life not buying into that. He firmly believed that the terror was still alive and out there somewhere, even though everybody said he was dead. And Arthur spent the rest of his teen years and early 20s having everyone think he was crazy. He dealt with serious mental health issues, had to go to therapy, had to do, you know, had depression, had a whole, a whole lot of things because he never really fit in. But he still idolized these superheroes. And then one night he meets this guy named The Tick who is this invulnerable superhero who kind of drags him into this superhero life. But then he finds out that the tick has amnesia and doesn't know who he is. So he's just this invulnerable dude who's super into heroism. He just, he monologues about heroism every episode. Guy's got a moral center like crazy and a, and a heart of gold. And he's just attached to Arthur because he's the only one he knows who he is. Arthur's the first person he met when he, you know, when he kind of, whatever happened before his amnesia, then he met Arthur and Arthur's the only guy he knows. So he just latches on to Arthur and doesn't let him go and kind of drags him deeper into this superhero life. And Arthur ends up getting this suit that the, the bad guys want. And it's kind of this moth inspired suit. Mm-hmm. So, so the tick and Arthur end up getting involved into this vast conspiracy but there's no government superheroes still working in that city since the flag five so they're just a couple vigilantes without any backing as the bad guys are amassing their forces in the background it's such a fun quirky comedy show the bad guys are they can be kind of menacing but they're also they also have this comedic tint to them like the bat the main bad guy miss lint she her power is kind of electrical in nature but because she has static electricity you always see dust floating around her that's why they call her ms lind and it just kind of pisses her off and she's hilarious because she's kind of a hot mess she's she tries to be super intimidating but nothing ever really goes right for her and she just sometimes she just kind of ends up looking like a joke or 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 whatever but so her, her whole thing is trying to gain more legitimacy and yeah, and and be the bad guy in her own right. And the people were like, "Man, you used to be such a cool villain. You were this you were the terror's right-hand girl. What happened to you? You're you're just doing small-time stuff now. What's like how far you've fallen?" She's like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> and um Superior's also really funny because he's he's this he's Superman but with a massive ego. He really thinks he like he loves humanity, but he also loves how much humanity loved him. He is, he Mm. is a good guy, but he's just, he's, he's an egotist and he doesn't really understand how people think. He just knows he has to save them by any means necessary. So Arthur ends up kind of being his, not his conscience exactly, but kind of being his grounding later on in the show. And the tick himself is just a delight. He's just this pure good guy who's like as square jawed. He's the... The Tick, the best way I can describe him, is the hero you think of when you think of the most stereotypical hero ever. He's the square-jawed action hero, invulnerable, hands on his hips, has a a, a moralizing speech for every scenario. Mm-hmm. He talks like this in a grand way. Monologues. Hey, he's, he's so good. Also, one of my favorite characters is the uh, the anti-hero allegory named Overkill. And he's just this edgelord 
with a tragic backstory <laughs> who's like an assassin at first and he kind of causes trouble for them there's there's a lot going on it's a, it's got a great lore it's a great tone if you love superheroes and or you're getting tired of marvel and dc's version of superheroes it's a fresh thing it's it's just a really fun show and people need to give it more love it already got canceled unfortunately but it's a great two seasons like every takes other a, tick show yeah takes a little bit to get into i think at first to you know get a feel for the tone but it's so fun mm. so now i'll do the video game that i had in mind i think assassin's creed unity is incredibly underrated you're rolling your eyes at me and i'm gonna tell you and i bet i know why uh, that was a joke i i i agree with you actually the story of Assassin's Creed Unity is pretty good. Is no, I'm talking about in like in a meta way. The story of Assassin's Creed Unity is ridiculously unfairly defined by its launch day glitches. Mm-hmm. How many years later? Oh, they're is this? still there. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. not like <laughs> maybe well, what is this? Eight years later. Yeah. And every and all the first thing you talk about, anyone says uh, Assassin's Creed Unity, first thing somebody will mention, oh that glitchy game. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It started out very badly. I understand. The glitches were game breaking. It was a big it thing. It also at the promised time. to be very heavily co op, but it was just for multiplayer missions. That's yeah. the one thing too. It didn't deliver on its promises. It was a it was a, a grand game with way too many glitches for people to appreciate. And maybe I'm lucky because I got a, a less glitchy copy or didn't have anything break on me when I played it fundamentally. So I just got mm. to appreciate it for what it was. But I think Assassin's Creed Unity is, are, it's, it's one of my favorite ones. I'm not going to say it's one of the absolute best, but it's definitely one of my favorite ones. And maybe that's just because I've got a, you know, a French background. I love Paris. I love the French Revolution setting. Just everything about that game is just so cool to me. I mean, you get to meet Napoleon. And one of my favorite features of any game I've ever played is the is the way the city reacts around you as the French Revolution is picking up steam. You feel the city getting more dangerous. Guards are right. more likely to pick on you. People, citizens are more likely to start picking fight with the uh, with the with the guards in the streets. And like the game just feels like it's got this great air of danger the more it goes on. I also love the opening set piece where I think uh, him and his mentor break out of the Bastille on Bastille Day. <laughs> That's a great opening scene. Arno Dorian is very charming. You know, he's not as, you know, well-defined as Ezio, but he has, still has a pretty cool backstory. His father gets murdered, which I think you, you see why in Assassin's Creed Rogue, which I, I didn't play, but I No, you do story. it. You do it in Rogue. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, didn't play that yet, but I... I know, so his father got killed and he was raised as an assassin, which is pretty cool. I also love the idea of his romance story with, uh, I think her name was Elise, the, mm-hmm. the Templar assassin love story, kind of a Romeo and Juliet thing in the Assassin's Creed universe. Most of these games are just about going after the MacGuffin, but Assassin's Creed Unity is basically a love story. Like, it's a French Revolution love story set against the backdrop of an Assassin's Creed game. Which it's got this epic scale. the The combat is super quick and free flowing, and just made me feel badass. I could take on so many guys. Like I got so good at that sword combat. Arno just 
felt fun to play. And um, the detail they put into Paris is astounding, especially for back then. Yeah. Oh, say what you will about some of the story qualities of some of the newer Assassin's Creed games, but the production people are always on point. They always nail it. Like, they should get paid the most. Yes. Egypt, ancient Greece. Yes. Valhalla. Yes. Stunning, like stunning just actual production and game level design. Historical accuracy is kind of their bread and butter of those games. It's like just playing mm-hmm. historical simulators. So I, I really think this game is severely underrated and it, it had a bad launch. And I don't think it's fair that the game is still defined by that launch today. Nobody ever seemed mm-hmm. to get past it and actually review the game, which, hey, you know, yeah. the game's not perfect. It's got a lot of problems beyond the glitches, but it's way better than people gave it credit for at the time. Mm-hmm. I remember it being good, and I also remember thinking at the time it had the best customization in terms of the assassin's, your version of the assassin's clothing. Mm-hmm. That's what I uh, just, I just remember it being more extensive than even some of the later stuff we got. And the only other customization that I think I can remember is Syndicate. But even right, then, it right. was still a little limited. But Unity lets you go all out in terms of clothing, what kind of hood you wanted, what kind of blades you wanted to do. And I actually really liked the story between him and Elise. And yeah. yeah, again, once you go past it, past all the glitches, it was still a well-defined story. Oh, yeah. Another feature I remember was uh, that was the first Assassin's Creed game that let you do investigations. There were some... There were certain sections of the game where you got to do these. I don't want to, it didn't go as in depth as like a Batman Arkham game or anything, but right. you, got, you got to do these little investigations where you went into an area, found out a crime had been committed or something, tried to gather as much evidence as you could find with your eagle oh. vision and whatnot, make accusations, turn people in for arrest. Oh, okay. And I'm playing I through that. I'm playing through Assassin's Creed Origins right now, and it's kind of got a similar thing in smaller doses, but it started in Unity. It was the first time. And that was one of my favorite features while I was playing in the game. It made me feel like a detective mm-hmm. in and amongst everything else. So, okay, what's, what's your next one? Uh, my next one is, I turn off my phone for some reason. Just going through the list here. I'll save that for later. Uh, one I just thought of is, I'm actually going to get rid of one because I don't think it's that underrated. I think people are like, oh yeah, that's a good game. Uh, and the thing I was just thinking of was like the Shadow of Mordor series. Like people know those games are freaking excellent. But the one I'm thinking underrated is Battlefront 2, not the 2017 version, but the 2019 updates. It mm. got so much better when those updates were released in 2019. specifically. The Clone Wars stuff. Now, granted, that was the one when 2017 came out, were people mad, rightfully so, about the quote-unquote micro microtransactions? Yeah, because EA is a juggernaut and they need to be taken down. However, they didn't affect the gameplay that much. The only thing the microtransactions really were for, I believe, were to upgrade your star cards or to get different types of star cards that made your character a little bit stronger. But I don't really remember them affecting the gameplay that much. I think I remember multiplayer being like a little bit glitchy and the servers always being kind of laggy. The story campaign is kind of basic. It's not that memorable. 
people were really hyped that he got to play a bad guy, but then, you know, six missions in, he'd do a 180 flip, which was like, great, thanks. Thanks for doing that. But in 2019, they added heroes like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, Count Dooku, General Grievous. Just really fun characters that brought you back to the original Battlefront games mm-hmm. where you can slice and dice. And I will say, Battlefront 2 2019 has the best flying. I'll say that. Yeah, It has the best flying of all the Star Wars games. It's just so refined. I feel like a badass every time I'm in Poe Dameron's X-Wing or Luke's X-Wing and I'm chasing down other people or other bots. I just think it's really fun. Oh, and they also added like the Clone Commandos, a really niche product from the Clone Wars, and you could do that. They even added a mode where you didn't even have to be online against people. You could just play with four of your buddies or four randos, and you just play instant action, and you play against these bots, and you just have fun with people. And it sucks that after that, because that's really was the rise of the popularity of the Battlefront game, uh, that they were like, we're not going to be adding any more updates to that. And as soon as they made that announcement, it died really quick, which is really a shame because it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun playing it. It was my game that I was hoping for for the longest time. It was the game you heard. It was the game I wish Battlefront 1 was. It was just a re- it was, it's a really fun game for a Star Wars fan because I mean just the variety of characters you could be even the minions you could be from the different from the prequels to the originals to the sequels and even as the sequel trilogy was going on they kept making updates updated missions even when Rogue One was released when the Han Solo movie was released they kept making updates so that was really cool of them to do and it was just a really fun game and you can never beat Darth Vader. You just can't do it. He's the tank in that game, or Anakin. But it was just a really fun game, man. And it sucks that it's dead now. You know why I know that is a good game? Why? Because when I was a kid, the original Battlefront 2 from about 2005, that's one of my most played games of all time. My brother mm-hmm. and I played that game to death. I bet you I still remember the cheat codes to this day for... Unlimited ammo, invincibility, whatever we used to. Wow, using cheat codes, what a loser. We knew, we didn't, we tried not to use them, but sometimes it was like, okay, let's just give us unlimited ammo just to, you know, make it a little easier. The just go over to the little robot. It'll I know. Re- it'll fill your ammo up in two seconds. <laughs> Had to find the robot, just wanted to keep playing sometimes. You know what? Point is, that was one of my most play, it's one of my favorite games of all time. I have a lot of nostalgia mm. for that game. Battlefront 2 game. 2017 is better. This is a game so good. No, it broke, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's a game no, so it's good. Not. It bro- no, yes, it's it, not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. I no, broke it. I broke it. Yes, it is. It's better. And it's better because it did everything the old one did right. And it added more. It has basically all, by the time of the updates, it gave you basically everything you had in the old game. You could you could the only thing you couldn't do was like space combat entering ships directly besides that it basically had all the same game modes you had and way that's more why choice it's not of better <laughs> yeah okay that's the only thing it lacked besides that you said it has also fantastic- it didn't have that one match where you could only have more than four heroes at a time in the original game you could add up to like eight versus eight heroes which is probably one of the most fun i've ever had playing those battlefront games back the, in the heroes day. versus heroes is 
the heroes versus heroes. I'd play Battlefront 2 2017 just for that. It has prequel characters, sequel characters, a wide variety of maps that are actually well-designed and fun to play on. The ship combat's fantastic. The, it's got all kinds, it's got the most array of characters. Everyone's really well-designed. They all play, all the heroes especially play uniquely. Actually, all the classes play uniquely. It's such a great variety. You can be a player with your own specialty in that game. You could just be like, oh, I play super battle droids. That's my thing. Oh, I play clone commanders. That's my thing. The original game had that to a lesser extent. But my, my point is, I think 2017 is better because I have such nostalgia for the original one. And this one, this one broke through. You know, I, it's even got couch co-op, which even in a game from 2017, that's weird. The multiplayer is incredible. The couch co-op, I had a blast on too. You know, Battlefront 2017 is, it, it's an incredible game. It's, it really is. And you're right. It's a very big shame it died. I will only say 2005 is better is because that's what the game was on launch. 2017 was such a hot mess that it took two years later for it to be a great game. Well, see, that's my point, though. I'm talking about that game at its height. And that's, the, and that's another mm-hmm. one, going back to Assassin's Creed Unity, right? Battlefront 2017, the people who don't say it's better than the originals are still defining it by what it was at launch, which, to be clear, was a disaster. Unity's yeah. a good game, but it's not better than most of the others. I'm not, talking about, I'm not talking about Unity. I'm talking I know. About I'm just saying. But just because they fixed the game later doesn't automatically make it better than the game's past. I think Battlefront 2 is better than games past once it got finalized. The final version of that game is one of my favorite Star Wars games of all time. Disagree. Let's move on. <laughs> Nostalgia goggles. Okay. Nostalgia goggles. I played it last week. <laughs> I have it on my Steam. <laughs> 2005 yeah it's on steam Hmm. yeah well so my next one one of the first controversies potentially indiana jones kingdom of the crystal skull i've always maintained feeling you would say this and i was (laughs) is it on yours too no but i almost put it on there yeah you know maybe this is my nostalgia goggles on because this is the Indiana Jones movie that when Ryan and I were growing up, this is the only one we ever saw in theaters until Dial of Destiny is coming out now. Indiana Jones was far removed from our generation. It was 30 years finished by the point that uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out. And we're like, what? A new one? We get to see this in theaters in real time? And look, I don't know how the new one's going to be. I've got some hope because I trust in James Mangold, but even the goofier elements of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, I feel were partially done intentionally because Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, like the original Indiana Jones, was kind of a homage to Pulp Fiction's adventure movies from the 1930s, where rugged adventurers went in search of treasure had um partnered with beautiful women on their travels were just badasses they had the fedoras and the bullwhips and you know indiana jones is kind of an amalgamation of those kingdom of the crystal skull is an homage to pulp fiction science fiction from that same era or maybe the 1950s still 
like Flash Gordon, which George Lucas was a massive fan of. He wanted to make Flash Gordon. He got denied the rights and they made Star Wars instead. We know George Lucas was big on those. And I think Spielberg was too. So it, it's doing what Indiana Jones always did. It's just homaging different kinds of things now. It's combining those adventure mm-hmm. serials with the science fiction serials they loved so much too. And they have that passion behind it. it those serials were kind of cheesy as well. And were a little bit, uh, <laughs> the special effects weren't always the best and everything. But it's those, it's those cheesy 1950s sci-fi serials directed by Steven Spielberg. So it's already a step up from yeah. there. And you know what? Love it or hate it. It's got some of the most memorable action sequences in the last 15 years. I don't care what you think about nuking the fridge or Shia LaBeouf swinging on vines or whatever. Memorable. Yeah. Or, mm-hmm. or like when they, I think they drove the car over the cliff. There's yeah, like it's a little sword, goofy. Or like sword fighting on the car, CGI. But to go- people who ate that, they did the same thing in Temple of Doom. They were on a raft for two waterfalls. So to say that they've never been that goofy, it would just be a lie. Indiana Jones has always had that in its DNA. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not new. You're just older and pissed off because you see it as goofy now. Now it's CGI. Yeah. So that makes yeah, I it I think odd. there's pretty, I think there's some, pre, it's a fun adventure. Especially when you're trying to figure out the mystery. And then when you realize that it's aliens, you're like, this is a new direction. And it's pretty surprising. I mean, a few notable scenes to me are the one where they're looking in um, John Hurt's uh, cell and they've seen all the cave drawings. And then also when they first find the skull, those are just two notable scenes that I think work really well. And um, one scary scene for me is when that one, when those guys are getting eaten by the fire ants, mm-hmm. just like as a kid watching that, you're like, oh my God, this is wild. And to people who like harp on the CGI, this is around the time where like CGI wasn't really honed in. It kind of was, but they haven't, it's not as well refined to have realistic light, lighting and realistic um, compensation, compositing when putting in green screen elements and real life elements or even just animal fur and all that. So this is kind of their, I guess, Lucas, I assume Lucasfilm worked on this. Yeah, this was. It's kind of their, yeah, their like their testing ground of hmm, how much CGI can we get away with? And some of the, there's actually good CJ shots in this. Like, near the end where you see the alien for the, for, spoilers, when you see the alien for the first time, it's actually, I think, really well done. And then the UFO, I think, is really well done, how mm-hmm. they kind of obstruct it in the Mayan temple. I think it's a, it's a ballsy idea that they went with. Does it not work in some places? Yes. But it doesn't fail as hard as I think a lot of people think it does. I'll even say it. Here's my hot take of the day. I don't think it's the worst one. There, I said it. You think Temple of Doom's worse? I'm just going to guess you think Temple of Doom's worse. Okay. Because if you said Raiders or Last Crusade, then I have a I don't like Temple of Doom. And there's only one reason. It's because there's a lot of screaming from one particular character. Willie, yeah. But they've also stated, uh, what's really funny, when they were making Temple of Doom, George Lucas and... Steven Spielberg were both going through a breakup. So right. that's why, not with each other, obviously, no. but they, uh, that's why it was so dark because they were just going through stuff at the time. But like Temple of Doom is okay. Like that third act is real, I think is good. 
it just takes a while to get there and i think it's really silly i'm not saying i don't and i don't think temple of doom is bad it's just my least enjoyable one i think short round's an amazing sidekick i love short round it's just willy man i don't like willy and that's fair yeah i think people have to realize temple of doom wasn't fantastic either and crystal skull is even more enjoyable in many parts mm-hmm. i like what he did with uh the relationship it's also with- technically a prequel which is odd yeah that too i like what they did with bringing marion back mm-hmm. and his kind of chemistry with- is great yeah and reckoning his relationship with her in this one and i also love one of the final scenes because this wasn't this isn't something that Every movie nowadays is basically poised to tear down the old hero to make mm-hmm. way for the next generation. And or they either tear them down and, or kill them off or tear them down and kill them off. So that's why maybe it's refreshing to me even more in retrospect that Kingdom of the Crystal Skull ends with, um, well, okay, some bit of spoilers. But, you know, there's a fifth one. You know he lives. It came out over 10 years ago. People when Mutt Will, <laughs> like when uh, Indy's walking out of the building and then his hat falls to the ground and then Mutt Williams tries to pick it up and Indy scoops it out of his hand and puts it back uh-huh. on as he walks out of the building. Love that ending because it's not what be you get nowadays. Number five is not going to end that way. I know. I know it's not. I don't think Shia LaBeouf did that bad. He was fine. I, I think movie. people harped on him way too much. He's actually an excellent actor. Not a great person, but I and think he's an excellent actor. <laughs> and, and that's the thing. You know, he, he is a good actor. He's just Shia LaBeouf is... Mm-hmm. is the issue and i get why they didn't bring him back i hope they don't you know kill him off screen or anything because i don't want the real life they could do a recast yeah i don't want the real life problems people have with shia labeouf to impact the character let's i hope have they happy didn't endings. i hope they didn't this is before do uh dial of Destiny's come out i hope they either didn't kill off marion or she's just not in it at all i hope she shows up just like a little bit yeah because that would suck i like those two's chemistry and i've said this before in the past there's been some projects where you see Harrison Ford when he's gotten older and he's acting stuff. You can tell he doesn't care. But when you give a project to Harrison Ford that he actually cares about, he will go 100% into it and he's so much fun to watch. This movie is one of those examples. You see him smile. When is the last time you've seen Harrison Ford actually smile when he's a bit older? You don't. Yeah. And he's having so much fun here. The dialogue between... Him and Marion is really funny. Their chemistry is always off the charts. And there's even one line with the, um, like the triple Asian guy where uh, it's kind of like a throwaway joke. He's like, if you let me go, I'll break your nose. And then like three minutes later, he goes, he broke my nose. Told you. <laughs> like, <laughs> to me, that's just really funny. I know some people also take issue with the fact that he fights Russians over Nazis. But I like that update because in the, by the 1950s... It was around the, the Cold War. That's yeah. it, Exactly. The, the story said in the or, 50s now, the Russians were the bad guys in movies back then. Mm-hmm. If we're going based on these Pulp Fiction serials, that, like, that's a natural choice. And Dial of Destiny is going back to Nazis again, which I think, from what I've heard also, kind of makes sense for the time. Because that's when you're dealing with Nazis who got away and were contracted by mm-hmm. the governments for their intellectual expertise on things and it was kind of this moral gray area so uh, yeah there is there is some legitimacy for bringing nazis back in in the new one but at the time russians were and communists were Mm. the uh the red scare (laughs) the uh that was the thing to beat uh so moving on to my next one here this movie's got two titles so i'll say them both 
Edge of Tomorrow, Live Die Repeat. Oh, the yeah. Tom Tom Cruise Emily Blunt time travel movie. This is Ish. one I haven't seen. Ish. Okay, it's one of the best. It's basically what if Groundhog Day was a sci-fi action movie. Right. I know the premise and I know like the whole movie plot. I just haven't like sat down and fully seen it. Yeah. So just for the people at home, the edge of tomorrow is about he's Tom Cruise is this officer in the military when earth is being besieged by alien invaders and all the propaganda says that the military is doing great. Earth is winning actually get on the battlefield the humans are getting their asses kicked the end is nigh <laughs> things are going very badly which is the reality people like if you think we're going to beat some aliens we're not yeah but people like are still- aliens like here's like if aliens exist and they knew we existed and they wanted to kill us they could all right so for all those people who are like aliens are bad and if, if we come in contact we have to shoot first if they come in contact with us and want us dead they can have us dead all right yeah. So the fact that there's probably aliens out there and they know we're here, they're probably like, oh, aren't they cute? Anyway. They don't care ahead. enough. <laughs> they yeah. don't care enough. They were too busy destroying ourselves. Anyway. What's that quote? There's either, there's either life out there or there isn't. Both, po- both possibilities are equally as scary. Mm-hmm. So There's life out there. We're not the only life in all the universe. It's too... We're not the only it's, anomaly. It's too no big. Way. It's too big. Exactly. I don't know if there's enough life we'll ever come into contact mm-hmm. with, but we're not the only things in all of existence. Anyway, Probably not in our lifetime. Edge of Tomorrow. So Tom Cruise ends up going not to the front, but to the forward outpost. And uh, he's got this great reputation as an officer because he's kind of this, he's a PR guy, right? He's the one on the home front telling everybody, hey, we're winning. But in real life, he's just a coward. So he ends up pissing off some of his superiors who demote him and end up putting him to the front lines. And he's like, oh, like, I'm, I'm going to get killed. I don't even know how to fight. I'm like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> so he goes to the front lines, gets killed basically instantly. But when he's dying, he gets hit with this acid from an alien, which is this special acid that, it, yeah, from the, the special acid makes him go back to the beginning of his day. So then he finds out over time that uh, Emily Blunt, Emily Blunt's character went through this same thing once before. And that's why she's known as this great hero on the battlefield. She earned that reputation by living the same day over and over and becoming badass enough to just be a great mm-hmm. warrior in general. And that's kind of what edge of tomorrow is about is him reliving the same day over and over until he develops legitimate fighting skills. And his character development from start to end is incredible. Him and Emily Blunt have fantastic chemistry. The, the action set pieces are breathtaking, incredible. The aliens are scary and intimidating. The lore is pretty cool too. It's pretty funny as well. (laughs) Uh, All the times he ends up getting killed just in the, in the montages. I think my favorite one is when he wakes up and tries to roll under a, a moving vehicle on the army base to get out of to get out of drills. And then he gets run over by the car because he timed it That's badly. Great. Just little stuff like that is mm-hmm. just it's so funny. And it's just part of a montage. Yeah. 
So he just gets, it's Tom Cruise getting killed over and over and over again, which, hey, that never happens often in movies. So Edge of Tomorrow is kind of, he, he put all the times he died in one movie because mm-hmm. he usually makes it out of everything else. He's the hero. Love it. And uh, it's, it's good sci-fi. It's a good movie, good story. It's got everything you could want in a movie. Great action, comedy, character development, CGI, you, you name it. It's there. And it's original. Also too. a lot of great uh a lot of great actually it's based off a of man, uh, manga from it's an uh, original Ice. adaptation from a property nobody I'm I'm spinning. <laughs> <laughs> no, but from what I know from the adaptation, actually um of course a lot of names are changed and locations are changed, but it's actually adapted really well from what I've heard. Yeah. And also uh a lot of practical effects mixed in with CGI effects as well. Yes. Like they Tom and Emily are actually in the suits. I mean, her sword's not real because that's ridiculous. But they're actually in the suits. They're held up by wires because the ground's like completely in mud. And if they were walking around those suits, they would just sink. Mm-hmm. Actual explosions from what I see in the battlefield. So yeah, really good movie. Haven't gone around to just fully watching it. Because I've just seen, like I've seen it through clips and then like reviews on YouTube. But for people born before 2010... Here's another one. Hmm. The Bone series graphic novels. There's okay. about, and I mean the original series, one to nine. I have them all here. I'm not going to take them all down from the shelf because that'd be ridiculous. It is about these creatures named Bone Creatures. They look like little tiny white men, pale white men. And it's basically a mixture. It's this own little kind of Lord of the Rings esque type world but it's got its own little twist to it so the villains are these giant rat creatures and what they're trying to do is they're trying to destroy the light that's in the world they're being controlled by this uh this outcast i haven't read these books in so long but they're being controlled by this uh the hooded one that's what it is being controlled by her who's being used by the powers of the locust and they want to destroy everything and basically how these bone creatures come into play they're technically not even supposed to be in this story what they do is they kind of just stumble upon this little farm town and bone here his name's bone he meets he meets rose uh grandma rose or what the hell thorn thorn is uh kind of the love interest of of bone a little bit or he has a crush on her and events happen little spoiler things turns out hey somebody's a princess and they have to go embark on this giant adventure to get to the kingdom in order for them to fight these rat creatures to just to defeat it's a it's a story about good and evil and the reason why i probably hit a lot of nostalgia goggles with people because if you went to school public school <laughs> around the time of the 2000 or the 90s and the 2000s you probably saw these saying. books and your book fair and uh a book scholastic- fair is not i'm just kidding those are uh, scholastic news mm-hmm. think not newsletters but they gave you those little pamphlets with all the stuff that was going to be yep. at the book fair every year i, I always, always always saw those always use my allowance on these books freaking amazing books and it's just simple fantasy storytelling told for children 
However, there is some dark elements to it. So it takes the world that they're in very seriously. Now, the first three books are very light, I will say. There's only maybe a few dark moments in them. And the illustrations, man, are... They're just phenomenal. They're pretty colorful. And it's a graphic novel, too. So they can go all out with it. There's shades of the light and the when they're in the dark there. That's Thorn, by the way, if you couldn't tell. Yeah. There's, uh, there's all this stuff. There's the dragon. There's the rat creatures. They look pretty scary and all that. Sorry for the audio listeners. And it's just really well told through nine different graphic novels. Real, like This first book is only 138 pages, but it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with each new book. And it's a really well-crafted fantasy world that any child and their parent could get sucked into. And it's not one where a kid's going to read and come home and be like, Mom, look at here. And it's just blood and guts everywhere. Uh, it gets, it does get like a little violent near the end of the series, but nothing to burst your bubble about. And the reason I bring this up is because they've been trying for years to get an animated show or movie made from the series, but it's just always been canceled. Mm. So, and I think the latest was in 2019, Netflix had bought the rights or something and they were working on it. And then the author, Jeff Smith, came out and said, turns out, like, because of COVID, really, they had to drop it and they were no longer working on it. So oh, no. people are still patient to watch it uh, or to see it be adapted. I think it's really good. If you can even find these books, they're probably somewhere at Indigo or Chapters or wherever you get your other bookstore. I think it's a it's a fun read. Really, if you want to dive into a different type of fantasy world, take a crack at it. I've actually never read any of those, but I do remember them. Like you said, you know, they were just around for our entire childhood mm-hmm. at all the book fairs and whatnot. Just I, I don't remember anyone actually reading them, but I, I do remember them being plastered everywhere back then. So. Well, your school sucks anyway. <laughs> oh, it did. It, it, it did kind of. So my next one came out a couple of years ago. The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love this movie so much. So basically the plot of it is Nicolas Cage is, sorry, or just Nick Cage. It's kind of a, it's not a one for one about the life of Nick Cage, but it's kind of, this is who everyone thinks Nick, like the audience thinks Nicolas Cage is and what his life is like. So it's kind of right. Nicolas Cage playing a parody version of himself where he's this, he's kind of a washed up actor uh, with family issues and this guy agrees to pay him a massive payday to come to his birthday party. And Nick Cage is like, this is what I'm brought down to doing birthday parties. Okay, whatever. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it. So he goes to this private island to this guy's birthday party. And then the CIA throws Nick Cage in a van and tells him that the guy he's going to this birthday party is a is this hardcore gangster that they're trying to take down. And then Nick Cage can be their man on the inside. And Nick Cage is like, yeah, I'm an actor. Sure. Whatever. I can, I can play this. I can be a spy. I'll do that. But then as he's doing this sting operation on the island, him and this gangster who's such a big fan of Nick Cage, he invited him to his birthday party. He's the biggest Nick Cage fan in the world. And Nick Cage ends up having a, Big Played bromance by with, hmm? Pedro Pascal. Played, thank you. 
<laughs> I was waiting for you to mention it. <laughs> yeah. So the whole thing is basically Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal bromancing on an island over their mutual love of Nick Cage. <laughs> that is the unbearable weight of massive talent in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. The best scene in the movie, I think, is when Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal get high together on a on a car ride around the island, and then they start making this... They make it a meme. They start making this action <laughs> movie together where they start getting overdramatic, oh. and they just... It's them bonding, and it's, like, it's, it's kind of an adorable movie, but there's also a lot of great action scenes at the end that start going way over the top. It's nearly a parody of itself, which is... It's, it's so funny. It kind of deconstructs the public's perception of Nick Cage... And I love that he was game enough to play himself in this movie. Because I think it wasn't a lock-in. They wrote it hoping he would do the part, but it wasn't a guarantee he would even play him. So Nick Cage has has a great sense of humor. It's like you come, it's a celebration of Nick Cage's career in all its forms. The good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're a Nick Cage fan and have seen a lot of his best movies, and even some of his worst movies, you're probably going to find Easter eggs and references to it. This movie is just the Nick Cage celebration all around, with some good action and relationship building for good measure. Him and Pedro Pascal have some of the best chemistry I've seen in a movie in so long. It wasn't a very big deal when it came out but i saw it i loved it and i'm like the only person i know who did go see it at the time mm-hmm. so it's slowly it's a- gotten more and more hype over the couple months yeah it's kind of a sleeper thing since it's been on streaming it's been getting some mm-hmm. traction but i've been singing its praises for since it came out yeah love this movie my next one is what's your favorite movie paddington 2 <laughs> <laughs> paddington 2 is incredible by the way it it really is. I know, good. I've yeah. It's so it's so funny to like say that and then you watch it and you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Why is no, it so it's, emotional? It is so good. My my brother has will make me mention that it's one of his favorite movies of all time. He he saw that at the mm. beginning, like when it first came out, having zero expectations for it. And he always sings that movie's praises. He's got a little Paddington bear. <laughs> he he'll tell yeah. you that. Like, I gotta get my brother on here to talk about Paddington sometime because he'll just he can talk for an hour about it on his own a bit. Next one I got here is Starship Troopers from the late 90s. Sick. Delay, 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 delay. Okay. Yeah. So Starship Troopers, I believe, is based on a, on a book from the 50s or so. I don't think it's a lot like the book in terms of an adaptation. But I think it's underrated because... It basically predicted America's reaction to 9-11 years early. Hmm. It's like the way that 9-11 went down and then how George Bush and the American military went into Afghanistan and then in Iraq looking for weapons of mass destruction unfairly and without really any, any, any warrant to it. And everyone's like, well, why, why are we here again for revenge? Well, they didn't. But they're they're not the ones who did 9-11. You're just kind of waging this war. That's that's basically what Starship <laughs> Troopers is about. Oil. Like, it's for like, oil. <laughs> well, okay. But that's basically what Starship Troopers is about four years before 
Earth is hit with this crazy attack, and then the military has ev- pulls out every justification in the book to go to this foreign planet and start wiping out this presumably hostile alien race. But the entire thing is like it, this: it's in the subtleties and the nuance. Because if you're just watching the movie, maybe you'll just see what's on the surface: a bunch of badass fighting dudes, not necessarily the best acting out there is a bunch of muscly guys in, in armor who have guns and rush into crazy combat scenarios, very violent and bloody and crazy stuff. It's a really cool sci-fi war movie where human soldiers go and fight bug people in space for revenge for destroying some of the home planet. But if you're looking underneath the surface, the entire movie is really about how War propaganda impacts people and pulls you into causes that you might not have otherwise have joined and doesn't really make you think critically about what you're joining. Wait, isn't this is the movie where they fight a bunch of giant ants, right? They're kind of bugs, but they're not. Yeah, they're kind of like ants. Yeah. Yeah. This movie's great. I just remember what you're talking about. You remember this one? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone kind of everyone watches the movie thinking it's just about macho military people killing bugs <laughs> but mm. it, the whole movie is about propaganda and how people right. fall into these cycles generation after generation and once again it was so predictive america did this exact basically lived out the plot of this movie only a couple of years after starship troopers came out especially with that hindsight it's it's crazy it's like everything they did wrong was predicted in this movie and it just it blew my mind when i watched it so yeah, Starship Troopers, not the best on the surface level, but watch it with a critical eye. It's very good sci-fi. I I also heard it was like somewhat groundbreaking for the time in terms of visual effects. Its visual effects are pretty impressive still. Yeah. It's a good 90s action movie. If that's all you're looking for, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Classic. Yep. I, li- I, was confi- I was like trying to remember what it was, and then I was like, oh, it's that one. Oh, that's a good movie. Yeah. All right, what's your next? Um, I'm going to go back to video games. Yep. And yes, it is another Xbox exclusive. No, it's not Halo. But it was a launch title for the Xbox One. Remember those days, kids? And it is Rise, Son of Rome. Basically what Rise, Son of Rome is about this soldier who solely goes up the ranks from just being a regular Roman soldier to being the head of Caesar's army. Hmm. And he is trying to avenge the death of his family. It okay. is a simple game, simple single, uh, single player game. There was a little bit of multiplayer, but that wasn't the focus. And this was kind of around the time where a bunch of studios were trying to make sure single player games weren't dying off. And also, Xbox just needed, I feel like, a quick Xbox exclusive to be sent out with their console to sort of combat PS4. And personally, I think they did a decent job. I don't think it's phenomenal. I think the combat, yeah, the combat does get a little stale after a while, but the executions that you can do, the when, I mean, you can straight up dodge a person, you just press one button, dodge a person. 
and as he goes for a swing, you pull his, you put your sword right through his throat. It's amazing. It depicts medieval fighting in the Roman Empire really well. It, I think the city is really beautiful, how they depict Rome and all, and all the other different places that they go to. It's actually got a strong political message about it. They depict the barbarians as these savages in the very first mission. But then as you play throughout the game, you realize, oh, they're not savages. They actually have a fighting cause. And then you slowly get into the myth of who Democles is, and he's the spirit of vengeance, and it slowly becomes tied into the main character. And funny enough, in the third mission, there's a save in Private Ryan moment. And But hmm. yes, does it steal from that a little bit? Yeah, but it's done really well. And I think the combat in it is actually really well done for something that was kind of, hey, we need a launch title. Let's just throw it out there. But the game developers were just kind of like no we're actually going to try a little bit here did mm-hmm. it mean to did it want to get a sequel probably not i think it was a really well crafted one-off story that they're like yeah it will show off the capabilities of the xbox one really well and um i think fans will be happy with it i had a lot of fun playing it as a fan of sort of the ancient greek and the uh, old roman empire era fun take on you know caesar and all the different you get to be in the coliseum i believe at one point as well yeah uh, just a really fun game i never even heard of that one sounds pretty i cool. know <laughs> nobody's heard of it so you i think it. there was another launch title that came out around when the xbox one came out and this was like the least popular one but i they weren't really known for the launch titles xbox they were just like, now nah, we'll get to the games that we will get to. <laughs> so you went from an Xbox exclusive there, and I'm going to go to a PlayStation exclusive PS5 launch title, Astro's Playroom. Which I don't know if you oh. you played it. This doesn't count. <laughs> it is severely underrated. This is a fantastic- this is a tutorial game. <laughs> and you know what? I'm yeah. See, this is for people like you who don't appreciate this game for what it is. This game is a love letter to PlayStation. If you've been, I've been playing PlayStation since PlayStation 2, basically 20 years, most of my life. And this game is a celebration of all things PlayStation, going all the way back to the beginning. Mind you, I don't appreciate the PS1 references very much, but every world of this game... Why, do they pre- make fun of it? Hmm? No, I just, I, just, the- I just haven't... I just PS1 was before my time. Wow. I just never played it much, so I don't... I don't understand as much, but every world of this game is pretty well designed. There's four main worlds in it. There's PS1, 2, 3, and 4. Every one of these worlds is basically designed to be an amalgamation of the feeling of the greatest games of their respective eras, which once again, I wasn't really, I didn't play many PS1 games, but when it got to PS2, 3, and 4, yeah, those were my childhoods. Playing those games, like the one I specifically remember was the PS3 one, which is very clearly inspired by Uncharted, like Uncharted and platform games like that. It's got this distinctly Uncharted feel. And it's so for PlayStation fans, it's incredible because you, you get to live out all your your PlayStation nostalgia. And in every thing in every world you go to, you can find all these puzzle pieces or little accessories which remind you of different attachments the old playstations had the different controllers or webcams or 
just or batteries or like even the old memory cards they used to have. And I'm like, oh man, it's just it's a fantastic exercise in nostalgia, is what it is. If you've been playing PlayStation as long as I have, you will get hit in the feels. You will definitely remember most of this stuff or be brought back to that feeling of being a little kid playing these games or these kind of games. Beyond that, it's an incredible launch title for the PS5. Right from the opening tutorial, it shows you all the basic functions of the new PS5 controller and just how incredible it feels. It makes you adaptive triggers, let you kind of feel the the squeeze on it, like you're actually pushing something down with a bit of force, or it, it, they put these little these little astros in uh, inside the controller digitally and when you're rolling the controller around you can feel where they are in the controller in your hand which is kind of weird if you blow into the mic you can activate these little pinwheels in the game with the uh, with the sensor sensing your breath and i remember a crazy thing here i got justin to play the game one time he had zero expectations for it but he just came over here one time popped it in and it's a very subtle thing, but one part of the game, he was going through rain, right? And then another part of the game, he's going through harder rain. And he just kind of casually mentions to me, oh, well, rain's coming down harder here. And then I stopped for a second. I said, well, okay, but how do you know that? And then he realized that the controller was vibrating more intensely with the rain like he was so immersed in it based in the controller that he could feel the environment changed as he walked through it. And he didn't even realize that it was a game mechanic. He just knew the rain was coming down harder because he could just sense that. Like that's the kind of immersion that game can bring. It fires on all cylinders. It's so good. And I, I highly recommend it to anybody who has a PS5. It's built right into the console. Everyone who's got a PS5 has a copy of this game play it especially if you're a fan of playstation yeah i think i got like 10 20 minutes into it and then it was like hey your actual game's installed and i switched over yeah it's not that i thought it was bad i was just like okay i just wanted to play my game <laughs> yeah so i haven't gone back to it and i think i actually uninstalled it because mm -hmm. i needed the space <laughs> it's also just a fun cute platformer just for that's yeah, fun little distraction so my next one is Greta Gerwig's Little Women. This came out a while ago. Yeah, it's, it's based on the novel, and I love this movie. Yeah, It's so great. Right. People, like everyone I know who saw it, loved it, but nobody talks about it anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just a That's very... That's why I'm trying to figure out how this is underrated, because... Yeah, but nobody talks about it. When it came out, it. people are saying it's phenomenal. Well, yeah. it's underrated. To me, underrated is also like stuff that was acclaimed at the time, but nobody talks about it anymore for some reason. Like that also counts to me. It's not just things people said were bad mm. or were revisited. Like there's, there's some things on this list people said were bad, like Crystal Skull that were revisiting or some things that people never really caught on to. Little Women is one people who saw it liked it, but it never was, became mainstream. For some reason, right. it's well. I haven't read the original book. I'll I'll say I, I do plan to eventually, but I I love this story for what it was. It's just a bunch of 
sisters in this small community growing up together, going from the transition from girls to women and all the struggles that brings with it. They all want to take their own paths. They're all being influenced by each other and their families and the society around them. They all want to forge their own path and break out of stereotypes and be the best versions of themselves they can be, but they have all these obstacles they have to face. And it's just, it's a very, it's a very powerful story. It'll rip out your heart in a couple places. The, the chemistry between all the leads is incredible. It's got some of the best young actresses working today. Uh, Florence Pugh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, Emma Watson, all incredible. The, it's just a very emotionally charged story, very well done, uh, pretty empowering for young men and women, I think, who are finding their own way in the world. The, the set designs are incredible as well. Oh, it's got Timothy Chalamet in it as well. He's, he's one of the main characters. The, uh, it, it's just a really well-directed movie, really well done, really well written, just fantastic all around. I hope it'll make you feel like it did for me. So No, yeah, it was very popular around the time when it came out because it was also when I was in acting school and then like everybody wanted to do a scene from Little Women. But yeah, I've heard good things. Yeah. What's your next? Okay. Surprise to nobody. My next one is the Spectacular Spider-Man series. Oh, of course. <laughs> is this the one you were thinking no. of before? No, no actually. <laughs> Oh, okay. Then I know what the other one is. Yeah. This show is incredible. This show is what Spider-Man is fully. It's who he is as a as a person. It's who he is as a superhero. Josh Keaton, the voice actor, is the best Spider-Man to date. He plays Peter Parker so well. He plays Spider-Man so well. I need the a- quips he does is phenomenal what are you gonna say i need a hot take button just every time one of us says something that'll piss off a lot of people just a hot take i will take this show over ultimate spider-man over the two other disney shows that i can't name that they've done so far any day of the week i don't care if the show got canceled this show is so good that spectacular spider-man is the probably the one that got cameoed the most in Across the Spider-Verse, besides the really famous ones. This show is just the best. It shows Spider-Man, who is not like eight years in, but he's a year and a bit in. He's got some of his spider stuff down, and it shows the origins of a lot of his villains. Or most of his villains. The fight choreography is really good. The quips from Spider-Man is really good. And the relationship between Peter, Gwen, MJ, all the voice acting is done phenomenally. It does the Sinister Six arc. It does the Black Suit arc. It does the Venom arc phenomenally. It's probably got... It's it's not like a full-blown origin story, but they do touch on that during the Black uh, Suit arc. It does Craven the Hunter. It does mm-hmm. a couple of Mysterio episodes it even does a full-on shakespeare episode which is really crazy Hmm. black cats in it there's only 26 episodes right now you can all watch them on disney plus even though they're kind of out of order but just look it up 
And what really sucks about this show is that it was really well received, but the only reason it got canceled was because of copyright and buyouts. And it's just so ridiculous. And I brought this up in the Cross of Spider-Verse, but in our in our review for it. But basically what it was, Disney bought the rights to the TV shows for Spider-Man, but they couldn't buy the rights to the Spectacular Spider-Man one because that was a Sony-owned property. But Sony didn't want to part ways with it, so they just had to axe it entirely. That's the that's the quick rundown of it. It's weird legal bullshit loopholes, and it, it really yeah. sucks for people like me who really enjoyed the show. And it's just it again, it is nostalgia goggles, but I, I honestly think it's he's he's the best. Josh Keaton as Spider-Man, I think is the best. That's a good one. So my next one here is Mamma Mia 2. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> oh, he's gone. <laughs> oh, okay. Go ahead. Is that because you don't like it? No. <laughs> you don't like this one? No. Okay, here's my hot take. I don't like first Mamma Mia. I don't like that story. I don't like, I don't like either of them. <laughs> are you not a fan of ABBA or you just don't like ABBA's Mama great. Mia? I just don't like the musical. I just don't like the... Mamma Mia in general. I did not like... That was great. Okay, good. We agree on that. I don't like the original Mamma Mia, but that's why I think Mamma Mia 2 is so impressive to me, because it actually made me care about the whole thing. I think Mamma Mia 2 is far and away better than the first one, in basically every way. I don't really connect with the original story, but number two, and I know you had to, like, sideline Meryl Streep to do this story... <laughs> But the sideline, they killed her off. Spoilers. <laughs> Jeez, it's in the of, opening scene of a sequel. <laughs> Whatever. It's anyway. the opening scene. Anyway, what I like about Mamma Mia 2 is that it focuses more on Donna as a uh, as a as a teenager. And it's about how she met the three guys that Sophie would later wonder who's her father. That so it's it's a it's kind of a prequel and a sequel. It kind of did a Godfather. Cash <clears throat> Sorry, go ahead. It did a Godfather Part Two thing. It's a sequel and a prequel at the same time. Mm. So I don't. I don't. Once again, I'm not the sequel part. I didn't really care about as much because I'm not as connected to, like I said, that first movie. So the sequel bits are like, okay, yeah, this is nice, I guess, but I don't really care. The prequel stuff, though, I love. It's it's what I wanted more out of the first one. It's it's got more emotional charge to it, and it's just kind of romance story on a, on a scenic Greek island. It's uh with ABBA songs. It's, it's fun escapism, and really the set designs are really beautiful to look at. All the actors are clearly having a really fun time. This the the, uh, the song and dance numbers are really well performed as well. And what I like especially about Mamma Mia 2 is that it opened up the gateway to me for other ABBA classics that I'd never heard before. The first one was pretty well a set list of their greatest, greatest hits. But number two, I don't want to say it started getting into deep cuts because I think these were still popular, but I'd never heard a lot of them before. And I fell in love with a whole new set list of ABBA songs after Mamma Mia 2. So, got to give it credit there. It's just a really fun movie, really well done. Doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's way it's got 
I think, better filmmaking and a tighter plot than the original one. It invested me a lot more in this world. ABBA's always a win. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Especially great at the club. Great. Hmm? Especially at the club. Yeah. You point on Dancy Queen, everybody goes nuts. It's funny how a disco song from 50 years ago can still get everyone going. Well, it's timeless. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my one. <laughs> my other one is a CBC show called Anne with an E, which is based right. on Anne of Green Gables. Anne of Green Gables. A Canadian classic. This show is kind of as Canadian as it gets. It's based on a Canadian classic. It's set in uh, Prince Edward Island. And the song, the theme song of the show is tragically hips ahead by a century. <laughs> so th- this thing is Canadian through and through. Don't let that put you off, though, because it's <laughs> fantastic. The Why would tragically hip put people off, Joe? It wouldn't. How I dare mean, the, you? I'm from Kingston. <laughs> Canadianness of it all. Anyway, I, I think this is a very well-written show. It's, it's one of those tragic cases of CBC finally giving us something worthwhile and then canning it after a tragically short three seasons. Come on, it was actually good. But then it got too expensive for you to keep going, so you just, you canned it. And then you're going to reboot Anne of Green Gables next time you are looking for something culturally relevant to put on the National Broadcasting Service. It's infuriating, and it's... I don't know if it's going to be worse, but I loved every all the cast in this one. It's such an emotional show. Once again, it's another thing about going through going through adolescence. She gets she's an orphan with red hair who's adopted, gets bullied a lot throughout the show and has to deal with all that crap from being an outsider in her community. But through the love of her adopted parents and the friends she makes along the way, and her never-ending positive spirit. She becomes a force for good in the community and just brings light to, to her town and her family and just brightens up the lives of everybody around her. It's a very inspiring and uplifting show, but it also doesn't shy away from, uh, from real societal issues as well as examined from the lens of that time it talks a lot about um well i mean feminism is the main thing like it was back in the original books as well but they also talk about how rough it is for immigrants and season three tackles residential schools uh homosexuality as well which you know mileage may vary on that some people didn't prefer the more politically slanted stories with a social conscience. But, you know, I think they were mostly well done for what they were going for. And that's just an aspect of the show. A lot of it's just about the character interactions and found family and learning to love the people in your community, trying to make it a better place however you can. Just, I love Anne's optimism. It's kind of a joke in my family that my brother is very much a spirit like that just like Mm -hmm. wow everything's great kind of person we kind of mock him sometimes for it but like oh you're just like and with any uh but you know he kind of embraces that it's it's just a great show 
and more people need to watch it, whether you're Canadian or not. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's one of our greatest cultural stories, and uh, more people need to see this adaptation. What's what's wrong with yeah, some it's... uplifting content in the world? Just yeah, it'll make you feel good. Well, it's funny when um, I think when I was younger, we went to go see like an Anne of Green Gables play. Like mm-hmm. they put on the play. I remember nothing about it. I don't know what it is. I think maybe I was too young at the time, but I just <laughs> left not knowing anything. Uh, but I've heard good things about the show, and I even remember they were when uh, we were in school. They were, they were in like maybe their second or first season, and we're hearing high praise about it. And uh, it was filmed around. It was filmed in in Canada as well. Yeah. So that was one of those shows our teacher was like, hey, keep your eye on this. It's filmed in Canada. So this might be a show you have to go out for. Turns out, nope. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> how many more do you got? Uh, about four. Okay. I just found an extra one here. So. Asterix. I haven't finished the book or the series, but. <gasps> and I might have talked about four. Mistborn. By Brandon Sanderson. And again, it's another fantasy type book. And it's about this group of people who are known as Mistings. And they have these special powers that they're able to use to um, help them have advantages in battle. And basically what they're trying to do is take down the Lord Ruler of the entire land. Basically of Earth. He's been... He has been ruling the world for thousands of years, and he's been assassinated multiple times, but he keeps coming back, and they don't know how. And um, there's theories about it and whatnot, and, but they have this group together, and um, what's really dangerous about him is that he's able to come back, and they don't know what his powers are. And uh, basically what a Mistborn is, is what a... So there's these called the, the I believe they're called the Mistings are these people who have only one set of powers where say they can take a piece of metal and push it, that metal up against the wall. That's their power. Or they have one power where they can pull metal towards them. Mm. There's one power where if they I can't remember if they ingest I can't remember what the rules are. If they ingest the the metal, then they get that power like you ingest one metal you get super strength or super speed, and a Mistborn basically has all of those powers. And why I think this book is really underrated and why it's so good is because it is a mixture of fantasy with a little bit of science as well. So it obeys the laws of physics really well. So say like that push mechanic that I was talking about, if you were a hu- like just a normal human and you pushed a coin and you hit a wall, you would go backwards. So it'd be a quick way for a Mistborn to, they have, like, coins is one of their weapon, but they don't use it. They use it sometimes to hurt people, but they use it more so for movement's sake. They have, like, pockets full of coin. They can use it to basically almost fly, you know, jump buildings in a single bound. And the action in this book is really well described, and it's really scary, you know. Uh, And when they're fighting, they're basically fighting these giant specter creatures who they don't have metal again they don't have metal weapons because mistborns can use against metal they have these glass type axes that they use to chop people's heads off 
They have two giant spikes that are go through their eyes and they're really scary. And what makes them scary is that they have all of the Mistborn powers as well. But they're just mm. a little bit better. And again, I haven't made it through all the way through the book, but I think it's a really fascinating world. And the reason I think it's fascinating because it's very rare to come across a Mistborn, but our two main characters in this book are Mistborn. And one is sort of training the other to use uh, their powers for good. And it's kind of dark. It's a pretty dark story, but it's another interesting take on fantasy. Brandon Sanderson is very famous for taking fantasy elements, but applying a little bit of science to them as well. He's got another series called Something of Kings, I can't fully remember, but or Stormlight, I think it is, where um, they have these swords that are basically energy prone. They, they, they weigh like nothing, but they're gigantic. And if you cut through somebody, they don't, they don't bleed out. But say if I cut through your arm, then that arm is it's still on you, but it's just basically dead. It's just a dead limb for life. And then they wear this. And to, in order to protect yourself from that, they wear this stormlight armor and it's glowing. It's all metal and stuff. And that's I, honestly my underrated is just Brandon Sanderson as an author because I think he just is a really smart art, um, author. I had a stroke. He's a really smart author. And I think he needs to be looked at as probably up there as one of the greats just because of how unique his storytelling is. Hmm. I thought I recognized that name before. Okay. I just looked him up quick and that's, that's who I thought he was. The only time I think I've seen Brian, Brandon Sanderson's YouTube videos before. And the only thing I like, he talks about writing in some of them. And the only thing I remember off the top of my head was that he was roommates with Ken Jennings in college. Who's the, Oh, host of Jeopardy, greatest of all time player. So he hung out with wow. smart people back then too. That's yeah. cool. So my next one is Star Wars game, which among the Star Wars community is kind of lauded in some circles, but I don't think enough people give credit to Jedi Knight, Jedi Academy. This right. was... yeah, yeah, yeah. So this was one of the series of New Republic Star Wars games from late 90s, early 2000s. The first one of this series was Dark Forces about Kyle Katarn and whatnot and Luke's New Jedi Order. And this one, you're not playing as Kyle Katarn, but you're, Kyle Katarn is mentoring some new students in Luke's Jedi Academy. And you basically run missions throughout the New Republic, get to pick your force powers. Do you go more dark side powers, more light side powers? And you're just running around and platforming pretty well, killing progressively harder enemies until you discover this Sith conspiracy. And uh, like the story is epic and just really cool as well. The, the maps are incredible for the time as well. I love this version of Star Wars that I grew up on with the New Republic. The sequels left a very bitter taste in my mouth, but to me, this was the ideal How version. So? <laughs> oh, I, I'll, I'll talk about it at some point, some, sometime. Just know that they did. <laughs> anyway, I love this version of Luke's New Jedi Order. This is how I always envisioned it to go, and I just think it's pretty cool that 
this game had the guts to let you play as someone other than Kyle Katarin, even though he had a pretty prominent role in it. And maybe I didn't get the full grasp of the story because I never played the other Dark Forces games before Jedi Knight at the time. I do. They're on my Steam list. I do plan to go back and play all the old ones eventually. Yeah, they're on but, my Steam as well. Yeah, because there was one day where they just had a deal on all of them. Mm-hmm. And they were like two bucks a game. And I'm like, I'm, I'm getting them. Definitely as well. them. But the main selling point for Jedi Knight Jedi Academy is that it's got the best lightsaber combat of any Star Wars game ever made. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> With confidence. <laughs> the way this system works is pretty well, and what makes it so good, in my opinion, is that you, if you can actually hit the enemies, it's a one-shot kill. Lightsabers work how you Mm. expect lightsabers to work. The trick in this game is how do you hit the enemies? The enemies, especially where the jankiness comes into play. (laughs) Yeah, the enemies, especially ones with lightsabers, are are tough to hit because they they block and whatnot. But the the other thing is, it's I think it's a one shot kill against you too. So it's very easy to die in this game. You have to actually you feel like a Jedi because when you're playing with lightsabers you actually have to be that skilled. You have to block every blaster bolt and lightsaber attack against you. You die. But if you break their defense and you know how to play that, you you win. Use your force powers wisely as well. And you can build up light side or dark side powers. Everybody builds up lightning because that's just (laughs) obvious. But yeah, the lightsaber combat in this game is unparalleled as far as I've played. And I played most of the Star Wars games out there. So this mm-hmm. is my favorite lightsaber system by far in this game. So yeah, that's a fantastic combat system. It's just really fun to play and it's it's a solid challenge as well. It frustrated me like hell as a kid. But yeah, so that that's fun. Frustrates story, me now. <laughs> yeah. The story is great. Great locations, great vibe of the old legacy New Jedi Order. Big recommend there. My next one is the 1980s series, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Which, I think among Sherlock Holmes fans, this is pretty well regarded. But for just casual people, a lot of them have probably never heard of this show. So basically what this was, was the... It's an English series whereby they adapted the novels by Arthur Conan Doyle into TV movies. And then it was hour-long standalone episodes for every one of the Sherlock Holmes short stories, of which I think there were about 52 or so. And it sucks because, well, for multiple reasons, but the main actor who played Sherlock Holmes, Jeremy Brett, he fell ill before the end of the show, and they were they were mm. so close to adapting basically all the original short stories they were they were nearly done it was basically nearly a complete series but they they couldn't get all the way to the end which well it's a shame jeremy brett died young first of all it's it's a shame they couldn't finish it because jeremy brett is for my money the best sherlock holmes that i've ever seen in live action he nailed the character in all his complex facets and these stories are the best adaptations i've ever seen of the original novels Every adaptation I've seen draws a lot of inspiration from the novels. The, the BBC show Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman is 
one of my favorite shows of all time, but it, it's more inspired by Sherlock than a direct adaptation of anything. These old ones are basically one-to-one adaptations, as good as you can get one-to-one adaptations. I mean, yeah, they were a little hampered by 1980s English TV budgets, sure, but the production values were still solid for the time. They told the stories about as well as you can tell them with the best live-action Sherlock Holmes that there ever was. So, that's my recommendation to casual Sherlock Holmes fans. If you want to see a legit adaptation, look up the 1980s Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. All right, what's your next? Do you want to guess? The show you watched three times in the last few months? It might be. <laughs> I actually haven't finished it since the since the last time I told you about it. But yeah, it's not even about... the, it's not even the it's not even the show itself. It's just the entire company. It's the entire company, Critical Role. But mostly, yes, it's Fox Machina. <laughs> yep. I mean, just the idea of hey, let's get the best voice actors in the business right now get them together to do a D&D campaign and we're going to stream it online for other people to watch and have these all these amazing actors role play is one of the best things that happened in all of the internet i mean just the chemistry that they work off each other there's hour long compilations of best moments it's, there's moments where it made people laugh there's moments that made people cry there's moments that made people laugh, cry, cry, laugh. You name name all the above. And they're all just making and this up on the spot. Show, yeah. It's all it's all improv. There's it's not scripted. It's D D. Nobody writes this shit down. I mean, maybe there's like some planned events from the DM side, but 95% of the time, it's all improv. And it's all ac- accumulated into this brilliant show that is Vox Machina. This well-crafted, beautifully animated. Also, I forgot to mention when you brought up Invincible, the same people who animate Invincible are doing a Superman show. So that's going to come on on Amazon. Yeah, I don't remember the premise of what the Superman show is, but I I hear it's a more lighter tone Superman. Okay. But uh, with with Vox Machina, it's this really great, very well-acted TV show. Very well-directed, well-composed, excellent storytelling beautifully animated and nobody is fucking talking about it it's ridiculous People yes there is the popular the niche i know they talk critical, about it's like the niche the audience show. of critical role but nobody talks about the show and it bugs me to death because it's probably been one of the best pieces of media that i've watched in the past few years I don't know what it is. Maybe because there's diehard fans that really love the campaign and then maybe there were changes from the campaign to the screen that people were a little upset about. But even then, it can't be that major of a change. So how are they not like even like nominated for Emmys or like best animation or best voice acting? It just boggles my mind. Think about it. You put the best voice actors ever, ever, that are in freaking everything. Mostly the Last of Us series. <laughs> and they're not taught and the show's not talked about. That's what bothers me the most. It's not that, oh, you watch this show and you're like, oh, people are hating on this and this is underrated. No, it's just here's this phenomenal show that nobody's talking about. Okay, let me tell you how good this show is, alright? Ryan 
as of the time of, I don't know, look back in our back catalogs when Joe explains D&D to someone who's never played D&D or the D&D movie came out. Around that time, Ryan had never played D&D. He didn't know really anything about Critical Role. Had you even heard of Critical Role? A little bit. Okay, so you'd heard whispers of this thing on the internet called Critical Role. Mm -hmm. Basically, within the span of a couple months, Ryan's turned into a full-on critter and watched Legend of Vox Machina three times (laughs) before he even knew it was... He didn't even know it existed a couple months ago. That's how fast he turned, just by exposure to this I have merch now. <laughs> yeah. I have merchandise. <laughs> he brings his dice to our D&D games, which he had to join, just mm. because he got so into this. All within a couple of months. This show changed him as a person. It He's, did. He discovered For a whole better. new fandom he never, he, he had only an inkling of. And he's like, there's a whole side to the internet that I've never seen before. What the? But again, it also bothers me like, this is a very well, like successful internet company. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, I'm just going to say it, YouTube has never even tried to promote them that well, to me is a little ridiculous. They are more into the promotion of like the single influencers over the years. But like, hey, here's this company that started on the internet and posted stuff on YouTube. Wouldn't you want to be like, hey, a business was created basically from YouTube? Yeah. But they just like, there's no promotion from them whatsoever. I don't know, man. It's a travesty that it's not uh, talked about more. Make it a bigger thing. And uh, rest assured that the story will be okay because the story finished many years ago. Don't get yourself spoiled. It's just an adaptation of it. So they're Mm. not going to mess it up. I should hope. My (laughs) next one is Star Trek Enterprise. And Star Trek fans are already groaning at me. Yeah, I know. Okay. This is kind of the black sheep of the family until some of the newer shows piss people off even more. Star Trek Enterprise is the show that would have run when we were kids, about 2001 to 2005. I may have even seen it on the air at the time. I don't remember. But so it stars Scott Bakula as Captain Jonathan Archer. And it's a prequel. Oh, piece of garbage. <laughs> what are you talking I about? You never remember the poster. I said, I'm not kidding. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, it stars Scott Bakula as Captain Jonathan Archer. And it's a prequel series to Star Trek, the original series, or really all of them. The basic idea is humans have never done deep space travel before because the Vulcans have held them back from it. Yeah, you have the capability to do it, but you're not really ready to go out there. So just stay on Earth. Keep growing as a society. It'll be fine. But then the humans kind of push back on them anyways, and for yada, 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 they end up in space very much unprepared. This is a Star Trek when phasers are still brand new. They they basically just upgraded from guns. The ships don't even have shields yet. They still dress basically like they're NASA astronauts. They, like, the technology on the ship looks more like a submarine than a futuristic this is like a submarine in space than a futuristic starship. They, they still watch movies, uh, like have movie nights. They still have an onboard cook who cooks for them because they haven't invented replicators. 
They can only go like warp five, which is half as fast as they could go in a hundred years from then. So it's just, it's Star Trek, but stripped down in a way that is, it's the most grounded Star Trek from my perspective. It's the Star Trek that feels most like, oh, this could be astronauts legitimately in a hundred years. And I could totally buy into that. And that's my favorite part about Enterprise is just how real to life it feels. A bunch of astronauts going into space with no rule book and completely making up things as they go along. And they make a crap ton of mistakes. That's kind of the funny thing of the show. If you know anything about Star Trek, you see them go through troubles that you're like, well, I know how literally every other crew in Star Trek history would deal with this. And that is why, because you messed it up royally. They had to make a rule for it (laughs) just because of that. So they get into all kinds of shenanigans in space. And yeah, the characters aren't, some of the side characters aren't as well developed, unfortunately. But uh, the main trio of uh, Trip Tucker and Jonathan Archer and T'Pol, they're all really well developed. And I, I came to really like these characters. It's a very, it's, it's a good spin on Star Trek. Once again, maybe it was crapped on at the time. But we've gotten worse since then. <coughs> Discovery. <coughs> Picard season one and two. They're bad. They're, they, I, oh, they pissed me off so much. But yeah, Enterprise, it's a solid show, except for the finale. The finale is garbage, I will say. I did not like it, except for the final minute. The final minute nearly brings me to tears. But the rest of it is, ugh. And it takes a little while to get, Why, oh, God. Never mind. Because they kill off my favorite character and, and shoehorn in another character who we never saw in the show before as the narrator for the whole last episode and then skip over all the interesting bits just to end the show. It, it's, it's frustrating. It doesn't I was about really, to say, who blew up? <laughs> I'm, not, uh, I'm not getting into it. I just got <laughs> angry. <laughs> but yeah, Enterprise is a very underrated installment in the Star Trek franchise. It's got good sci-fi stories and it's got a great tone. I enjoy it as a sci-fi fan. And yes, I even like the theme song. People hate it, but it grows on you. Okay. You'll be belting it out by a couple seasons in. If you actually stop to listen to it the rest of the way. Cause that's called Stockholm syndrome. It works. Doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. Yeah, I got faith of the heart. Uh, so my last one here before I rush through is Batman the movie, 1966. The granddaddy of superhero films. I know Superman the movie in 1978 is basically the one oh, that... Oh, 66. I got confused. Yeah. I know Superman the movie is basically the one that showed... Oh, superhero movies can exist with legitimate special effects. You'll believe a man can fly. That kind of thing. Christopher Reeve's Pitch Perfect casting. One of my favorite movies of all time. But this is basically an extended pilot for the Batman TV series that got released too late. That they put a lot of budget into. And for my money, it's still one of the best Batman movies. Let me, let me just give you a quick rundown of what this movie is, okay? This is a Batman movie that you, you haven't seen to this day. It's Batman who fights crime mostly in the daylight. He's already established as Batman right up top. No origin story. 
anything. He's a fully fledged Batman with a Robin, an Alfred, a Batcave, the whole shebang. In this movie, he fights Penguin, Riddler, Joker, and Catwoman, all teamed up, and who all have scenes together fighting each other. They have a crazy comic book inspired plan where they're going to get together all the greatest leaders of the world, shrink them down into powder based on this dehydrate, this silver agey dehydration machine and, and like hold the world for ransom or something like that. It's been a while since I've seen it. And then meanwhile, Catwoman seducing Bruce Wayne and he's, he's falling for her and Robin's trying to save Bruce Wayne. This is, it's a very lighthearted movie. It's got some of the most famous quotes in, in the Batman lexicon. Like, it's arguably one of the most quotable Batman movies. Yeah, I know people quote The Dark Knight all the time. But what about some of these gems? Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> or uh, the, the one where they're uh, the, the kindly porpoise that saved their life when they were going to get blown up. Uh, or the bit when they're climbing up the building and uh, and they, they, they're um, these these drinkers are all going to like this bar is going to get blown up. And uh, and Robin's like, well, you know, they're kind of the dregs of society. Maybe we should just let them die. And Batman's like, they may be drinkers, Robin, but they're people, too. <laughs> that kind of moralizing or when they're in like the 60th story of a building at the end. Robin, I think we should leave inconspicuously through the window. And then they just climb down out the 60-story building instead of take the stairs. Or one of the most classic is when Batman's fighting a mechanical shark, or maybe it's just a real shark, and he's hanging off the rope ladder and he screams up to Robin in the Batcopter, Robin, pass me the shark repellent bat spray. And then he just sprays the shark off him. It's classic stuff. Mm-hmm. It's very. It's Silver Agey weirdness at its best. This is not a grimdark Batman. This is not a Batman a lot of you will enjoy. But if you're like me who enjoys seeing campy Batman, who, you know, oh, this is a Batman who like actually has a Robin and he's not a completely like he's a traumatized person, but he's not a brooding, depressive person 24 seven. He fights some of his best villains in some of their best iterations. Cesar Romero's Joker, um, the Frank Gorshin's Riddler, Burgess Meredith is uh, the Penguin, Julie Newmar is Catwoman, some of the best versions of these villains ever. All four of them get a lot of screen time. You got the classic comic book effects with every punch. They have a lot of grand set designs. It's basically all practical effects. There's helicopters, bat boats, batmobiles. Grand fights and set pieces, colorful costumes, everything is well lit so you can actually see it. It's just a, it's just a fun movie that people sleep on because it's not the Batman they think of as Batman. Great performances mm-hmm. all around, quotable, just great time as a, as a comic book fan. They need to make more comic book movies like this that aren't afraid of the zaniness and just let things get weird. It's one of the most comic booky comic book movies I've ever seen. They're only now just letting modern adaptations get weird like that. And they were doing it 60 years ago. This is one of the first right. big ones. So they were way ahead of their time there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've heard good things. Yeah. What's your next one? 
That was it. Oh, you're done? Yeah. <laughs> okay, then I'll just, I'm going to rattle off the rest all of my right, honorable. I'll agree, and I'll agree or disagree when I hear them. Just real quick. Okay. Captain America, the first Avenger. Okay, sure. <laughs> Underrated. Uh, Vox Machina, I hope you agree with that one. Agree. Uh, Booster Gold, the greatest hero you've never heard of. That's his tagline. Never so, seen uh, it. <laughs> yeah. Just the character of Booster Gold. Oh, Booster Gold? Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah. Part of me wants to die on the hill of Velma as underrated. I'm not saying it's good, no. mind you, but it's not as... No. Go, keep, keep, keep going. Okay. Save what it's, dignity you have left. It's, no. It's not as bad as people Keep going. Say. It's not good. Keep going. It's not that bad. Okay. Uh, this one's a bit controversial, but I'm going to say Better Call Saul. Just because some Breaking Bad Agreed. fans... Some Breaking Bad fans never even gave it a chance. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. The Monkees TV show from the 60s is basically Don't what if... It. Exactly. It's basically what if the Beatles got their own TV show, but they were just as oh, big as... right. But they were just as big as the Beatles at the time, and yeah, the soundtrack is killer. I love, I love their songs. Mm-hmm. Just catchy stuff. Something written by some of the best songwriters of the era. Uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige. Agreed. Uh, the 1960s Great Escape movie. Agreed. With Steve McQueen. Back to the Future 3. Agreed. The Hobbit movies. Controversial, but agreed. Tom Cruise is Oblivion. Oh, yeah. Agreed. Now you see me. That was the first one. That was the first ever movie to do the volume. Really? That's like crazy. the like the like the start of the volume in terms of when they were up in the space uh, in the sky, they used like an actual projection like that was like alpha of the volume. Wow, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now you see me. Yeah, agreed. Magician Thieves. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, the man second from one's Mon- bad, but <laughs> yeah, the first one's first second. One's good, second one's bad, but Daniel Radcliffe is really fun to watch in that movie. Yeah. Uh, the man from uncle. Haven't seen it, but agreed. Underrated spy movie. The warriors. Uh, what's that again? This gritty 1970s movie about this group of gangsters who, Ends uh, up on the run from all these other gangsters in New York. And oh, yes, yes. No, yeah. yeah, that's a classic. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But, yes. Uh, but underrated. 100%. I don't hear anyone ever talk about Warriors it. come out to play. Yeah. Uh, Ghostbusters 2. Never watched it. The Founder. <laughs> oh, love that movie. Uh, that was yeah. one of the movies I forgot to put on our leisure list. Yeah. Because I watched it again recently. Cool. Uh, Merlin, the TV show. Never watched it. It's basically a <laughs> origin story of Merlin the Magician and King Arthur. Pretty, it's not a direct adaptation of all the Arthurian myths, but they're mostly in there somewhere in some version right. or other. They put their own spin on it, but it's a really fun show. The Lost City came out a couple years ago with uh, no Channing idea. Tatum and Sandra Bullock. Oh, Dan- yeah, yeah. Daniel Radcliffe is the villain things. in that one yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a fun movie. Nightmare mm-hmm. Alley. I thought you meant the, I thought you meant the uh, animated movie, and I was about to be like, yeah. <laughs> Nightmare Alley also came no out idea. a couple years ago. It's uh, Bradley Cooper. He's basically, um, he's a, a mentalist, 
he's a he's a carny who pretends he can read people's minds as this magic trick, but he becomes obsessed with the idea of conning people, kinda. Mm-hmm. It's very Couldn't interesting. The last duel, Ridley Scott. Yep. Good movie. Lynn Manuel Miranda's in the Heights. Yep. Dark Waters. Mm, never seen it. That one really pissed me off. Basically, it's it's a true story. It stars Mark Ruffalo. It's a true story about how these investigators found out how DuPont chemicals like poison the entire planet ever since they became oh. a company. Oh, yeah. right, right. It's very interesting. Star Trek Lower Decks, the cartoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Banshees of Inishirin. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not really underrated. People know that one. Who does, though? People like Oscars people know it. Mainstream people don't. Yeah. Well, they are the ones that matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, the show Chuck. Agreed. Young Zachary Levi. Mm-hmm. Grand Budapest Hotel. I never watched it. Not a Wes Anderson person, but agreed. So fun. Uh, Arkham Knight. Oh, yeah. I was People, a defender of Arkham Knight. <laughs> it got crap at the time, but come on. Mm-hmm. Lego Rock Band. 100%. It's the hardest one. How did they make the yep. kiddies one the hardest one? It's not fair. They also made it the most fun, because each level you progress, you get a new thing added to your band. Like, you get a van, and then at one point you get, like, your own private jet. It's yeah. It's really fun. And it's got a great set list as well. Mm-hmm. And Knights of the Old Republic, too. Is that the is that the Dark Revan uh Dark Revan one? That's the second or one. Or is that the other one? No. Okay. The first one's yeah. The first one's gotcha. about that war. Kotor two is right. the other one. Yeah, they're both fine. Both all right. That's gone. It's weird because like those types of games is really funny when those games are coming out. The cinematic trailers were super cool. And then it's just like the slowest type of gameplay possible. <laughs> I think you're thinking of the old it's- Republic. Which is what did you say? Knights of the Old Republic. The Old Republic is based in that world, but it's set a couple hundred years later. That's the MMO, yeah. also made by Bioware. Right. Isn't Darth Bane in that as well? No, Darth Bane is later. Oh, okay. Never mind them. The cinematic trailers were for the Old Republic. I think the Kotor games are they're too old for cool cinematic trailers like those ones. Mm. I know exactly okay. the ones you're talking about, but yeah. The ones with Darth Bane, like that, the, I'm thinking of like the MMOs or whatever. Uh, Darth, that's Malgus. It's the one with the, or Malgus, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the old. Those Republic. ones are like the best cinematic trailers of all time, but like just the slowest gameplay of all time. Yeah, kind of. So, uh, let's sum up your, your top ones and I'll re-sum up mine. Okay. Let me just open her up here. Uh, Titanfall 2, Battlefront 2, 2019, Spectacular Spider-Man series, Critical Role slash Fox Machina, Rise, Son of Rome, The Bone Graphic Novels, and Mistborn, aka also known Brandon Sanderson, just as an author as a whole. So, uh, Lost in Space, which I forgot to mention up top, but uh, Maureen Robinson is one of the best TV moms I've ever seen in anything. So good. The Lost in Space... Mad Max, The Game, Assassin's Creed Unity, The Tick, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Edge of Tomorrow, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, 
Starship Troopers, Astro's Playroom, Little Women, Mamma Mia 2, and with an E, Jedi Knight Jedi Academy, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, Star Trek Enterprise, and Batman the Movie. The most underrated media of all time. <laughs> That's the so official. We title this. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Big titles like that get the clicks. So we expect all of you to watch and read all of this by the time of next podcast. And uh, also, if you have any strong opinions on any of these things, beg us in some of the comments and maybe we'll do longer form episodes about them. Yeah. I mean, we'll definitely. Which side of Battlefront are you on? The modern or the classics? <laughs> we might have to do a debate on that at some point. Oh, that'd be fun. Yeah. Because to be clear, I love both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are our picks for underrated things. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely come back to some of these again, either in. Oh, yeah. Either in, I guess, Leisure Lists or Ryan and Joe Explains or uh, in defense of. There were some controversies mm-hmm. here. We had fun today. But uh hope you did too. So plug your socials and let's get out of here. Alrighty. Well, you can find me at Ryan Walker Official on TikTok, YouTube, and on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at ThoughtPlay Media. Also, check out the Close Up with Ryan and Joe Facebook page for latest updates on the show. If you listen to us on audio, check out our YouTube channel. And if you're on YouTube, find us anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. We hope to see you on the next Close Up with Ryan and Joe. Till next time. Take care.